Well, good morning, Westmount. It's great to be back with you. One thing I was uh, uh, struck with just as, as soon as we entered the doors this morning, and I think it's important to always be aware of, we're thankful for the gifts God has given and, uh, and teachers. Certainly, yeah, we, can, we can all think of many teachers in the past who have helped us and taught us the Word of God. We thank God for them. But the corporate ministry of the saints... Um, from this morning when we were praying in Jason's study to uh, Jer's ministry of worship on the guitar and, uh, and Jim's beautiful prayer and Bill's devotion, I already feel full and ministered to. So um, we just, just keep that in mind. We're thankful for the, the leaders and the teachers, but ministry happens the moment you walk through that door, the moment you're talking to a Christian, ministering to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a wonderful thing, and it's what makes the institution of the church so unique. If you have the Spirit of God, you can minister to one another in a powerful way. So uh, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 11 this morning. Psalm chapter 11. I'll read it, and then we can uh, pray. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Lord, we can say with David surely this morning, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. We are thankful for the church that you have bought by your blood. This is not an institution that we have achieved through strategic planning, through uh, charismatic character or a compelling vision statement. The church is your work. It is uh, your work to begin and your work to complete. And we're thankful in these days in the midst of uh, a tumult and upset and, and uncertainty that this sure foundation stands. The Lord knows who are his. Lord, we thank you for your reign over all, as has been um, mentioned and prayed already so many times. Uh, This is surely a reason to hope, even when perhaps our immediate circumstances don't give us all of that much reason to hope. Lord, our hope has always been in uh, your promises and in your word. Uh, that That is our anchor. That is our confidence. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who stands between us and the 
crushing reality of righteousness. Um, who is our righteousness. Who approves us to God. And uh, we thank you for the safety and the assurance we have through him. Be with us as we are in your word, as we are again reoriented to truth. Uh, give us your spirit. Help us to see. May your name be glorified. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, some of you may have seen these. There's um, a series of, of videos online. I guess they're put out by, I guess you'd call them a team of, of pranksters. This is probably going to show how juvenile my humor is. But they put on these very convincing costumes and uh, they hide out in various corners in parking garages and just waiting to jump out and scare the living daylights out of pedestrians. Um, it's a little cruel. It's also really interesting to watch how people respond uh, to an immediate threat. It's, it's a fascinating kind of social experiment. Um, some just kind of instantly crumple into a little ball. Uh, others, you know, drop their pizza. They're gone out of there. One, this was sad, actually. One guy actually pushed his friend in front of him so, <laughs> so he could escape. So... Um, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating study in uh, fight or flight response. Uh, what do you do when you're facing down the prospect of imminent danger? In our psalm today, we're going to listen in on a conversation between fight or flight. Uh, or maybe more accurately, between faith and fear. Faith and fear. The faith response acknowledges, yes, things may be very bad. Things may get much worse. They're frightening. They're uncertain. But all of that isn't the whole picture. There's more going on behind the scenes. Namely, as we'll see, that the Lord is king. And he's seated, unflinching, immovable on his throne. The, the, uh, the flight or the, the fear response is, is basically unbelief in a nutshell. It sees only the overwhelming odds and not the God ruling above the odds, ultimately for his glory and the good of his people. The flight response says this situation is so impossibly bad and irredeemable, the only response is to flee is to run. So those are our, our two main headings, the flight response, the response of unbelief, and, and the fight response, so you could say the response of, of faith, and then I want to close with kind of one um, main application for us. So the flight response, or the response of unbelief, we see this position laid out for us in verses 1 to 3. Uh, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We always need to be on the lookout for the, the weeds of unbelief that grow in our heart. If we give them free reign... They grow and they choke out faith. That's what unbelief always does. If we 
Give it an inch, it takes a mile. Uh, if you remember, that's what happened to uh, that one category of sower, uh, the seeds that the sower uh, sowed. They started out well, they sprung up, and then what happened? Well, it says they, got, they get choked out by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Unbelief. Fears of the future are bigger. Financial concerns are bigger. These immediate things are too big. We give in to unbelief. Now, this may have been a real conversation David had had with people. I'm sure he did. Um, it may be kind of an imagined or a rhetorical conversation um, he's having with his own heart. Um, we should recognize this as unbelief. Uh, what unbelief does is it attempts to assess a situation on a purely physical cost analysis. You know, that army looks big. Those people seem powerful. He's too smart. We're so weak. We're outnumbered. Unbelief can't see past any of those things. Now, what circumstances we could ask is our real or rhetorical opponent responding to? And, and the short answer is we don't know specifically what David was going through. The fact is that David's entire life was uh, pretty much a constant terrifying narrative. Um, someone was always trying to kill him. If it's not the old king, it's the Philistines. If it's not his advisors, then it's his own son. David spends most of his life under threat of death. Constant uncertainty, constant crises. Whatever it was at this exact point, what's clear is that David and those Israelites with him who love the Lord, that is the righteous, were staring down what seemed to be extinction. Things had become very bad. The righteous and, and righteousness itself as an extension was under assault by this group that verse 2 calls uh, the wicked. The wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, if we go on in verse 5, we see that the wicked are the ones who love violence. And consequently, I think I may have spoken about this before, but they resent the people and the principles and the institutions that prevent them from working out all of the violence they would like to do. If you want a clear path through the forest, what are your options? Well, you, you get something sharp like a machete or a chainsaw and you start hacking away at the branches because those branches, those trees are impeding you from where you want to go. And in this case, God's righteous laws, God's righteous people are the branches and idolatry and immorality and lawlessness are where the wicked want to go, where sin always wants to go. And it resents being impeded. Um, this is what the rulers see in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, what? Let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. This is what sin 
is it wants total freedom to exercise all the evil in its heart. So we see the wicked here, they have motive. But see in verse 2, they're also well equipped. They've got bows and arrows. They know how to use them. They're aiming carefully for the heart. We also see here that they're stealthy. They're strategic. They don't come right out and confront righteousness. Rather, they they shoot at them from the dark. So they're cowards, but they're well-armed cowards. Uh, And certainly no shortage of supply of these kinds of people today. Um, Not only, we also see here the wicked trained in the art of destruction. They're actually excited about it. Their bowstrings are pulled back to their farthest extent. All of their energy and passion have been diverted to the cause of destruction, the eradication of righteousness from the earth. And destruction of good, of truth, of righteousness has always been the goal of wickedness, has always been the goal of sin. That's what godlessness wants. It doesn't want to build. It doesn't have any means or resources to build. It doesn't nurture. It doesn't construct. All it wants to do is destroy and dismantle the foundations of righteousness. Because when you leave out God, the giver of life, all you have is death. And I've mentioned also it's no surprise we live in a, in a death-enthused age. People excited about wiping every trace of God's image bearers from the earth. They hate being reminded of God. And Alex spoke about this a few weeks ago. And What is the reminder of God par excellence? Well, it's, it's the people who've been made in the image of God. They want to stamp them out. We also see in in verse 3, these individuals aren't just interested in burning down the building. They want to completely dismantle the foundations. The wicked don't want one stone of righteousness to remain intact if they can prevent it. It's all got to go. Remember Jezebel's hell-bent mission to get rid of all reminders of Yahweh in the land of Israel. Every last one. She wasn't just content to outlaw worship. She wanted to kill all the prophets. Now, if you're looking to buy a house, the the first thing you want to do is look at the foundations. You know, if the foundation, if there's giant cracks with squirrels nesting in them, you take a hard pass on that house. Because if the foundation is in jeopardy, Well, the house isn't worth your investment. It's not worth building on. That's the argument of unbelief. That's verse 3 there. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's the argument. And we see the destruction of foundations all over the place right to now, today. Marriage, that very foundational, a basic biology 
the sacredness of human life, these have historically been the foundations of civil society. Just basic things you can't deny. That people should have the right to freely worship according to conscience and conviction. The foundations, these foundations undergird the life and liberty we enjoy as Canadian citizens, but larger than that, free human beings. They're all in the crosshairs now. Why? Well, we've mentioned it not only because light prevents darkness, but also because light condemns darkness. Light is superior to darkness. And darkness resents being exposed as inferior. Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. And he felt condemned. That's what we see at the crucifixion. In an unmistakable way, Jesus, the ultimate reminder of just how wicked wickedness is, When you have a pure white, all lesser whites seem more dirty. If you want those dirty whites to seem more white, you just get rid of that pure white, right? And that's exactly what the crowds demanded. And what we all demand as we see ourselves condemned. Righteousness, true righteousness condemns whitewashed righteousness. In other words, it condemns hypocrisy. That's why the hypocrites killed the prophets and why they will continue to do the same to the righteous until Christ returns. It was the same thing in David's day. It's the same thing today. Never make the mistake of thinking the world, a system that is fundamentally anti-God, is on the side of the righteous. It can't be. They are antithetical worldviews. The presence of righteousness is a constant grating reminder of the unrighteousness of the wicked and the misery of that economy. How else do you explain the vitriol and the lies and the doubling down on stupid from our leaders? Leaders feeling condemned by those who are actually determined to care about vulnerable people wanting to silence that condemning voice. That's why lies are in vogue. And what are unbeliefs? What's unbelief's advice here? Well, he hears the drumbeats, the clatter of bows, the sound of the strings being pulled back. He sees the righteous just trying to live peaceful, quiet, godly lives, and he only sees one outcome of that altercation. And big surprise, the verdict of the flight council is to flee. Flee. Make like a bird and find the thickest forest, the highest mountain, the most remote island, and just camp out there. Just get out of here. We've got no chances of surviving this. This is always the counsel of unbelief. And if you allow it, a voice in your war cabinet, 
you're always going to make the wrong decision. And I'm sure we've all heard that voice once or twice recently. Unbelief can't see beyond the surface of things. It's reactive, it's self-protective, and it always fails because it fails to view circumstances through the eyes of faith. Faith not as a kind of sunny optimism, but a posture that sees to the heart and root of the way things really are. I'm just remembering now, um, there's one scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and uh, Hopeful, I think it is, are right in the thick of things. Um, Just They meet with trials at every step of the journey. They meet these shepherds who give them these kind of binoculars and with with them they can see if they have skill to see the the heavenly country right that that is faith that in the midst of the crises and the suffering and the trial you see things that are really true are more true than everything that's happening here and bigger than those from a purely human reading of the situation Gideon and his 300 men should not have been able to rout the Midianites it was uh, 301 against 135,000. And yet they emerged triumphant. Why is that? Well, because the Lord fought for them. It fought for, he fought for them even in the midst of Gideon's persistent unbelief that he would. The church right now doesn't seem to be the kind of institution that will end up victorious slandered, misrepresented, seemingly not influential or powerful or well-funded. And yet right from the beginning when it was just a bunch of scared disciples, the odds physically, immediately speaking, were never in our favor. And yet the church remains to this day and continues to multiply and one day will reign with Christ. But to see this requires faith. So let's look at the response of faith now. David is incredulous, almost uncomprehending at the response unbelief is suggesting in the face of this trouble. How could you even offer such advice? He says right at the beginning, the Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my refuge. He goes on in verses 4 to 7 with with three qualities to make the Lord a reliable refuge. These qualities loom large for David and enable him to stand firm, even when things look really bad. And just as kind of an aside, Christian faith is always in response to something. It isn't just some vague spiritual force that wells up in us if we pray hard enough. Faith is seeing and hearing about the refuge offered to us through Christ and believing it, moving forward based on that promise. So what are the three qualities of the Lord here as a refuge? Well, verses four, first of all, the Lord reigns. Look there, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This is the bedrock of faith. 
the reality we need to see so we can fight without flinching. David is saying here, you can't honestly, he responds, talk to me about foundations and fail to bring up the ultimate foundation. The church is one foundation. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Whatever foundations you're scared of of being removed in the midst of all this, it can't be that one. When the world was nothing but darkness and chaos and water, the Lord's throne was there. And for an infinity of time before that and for an infinity of time to come. The Lord's throne is the spine of the cosmos. It's the bedrock under all the sand and silt. It's the wire frame giving structure to the clay. From his throne, the Lord is the one who sustains everything, even the wicked, and determines ultimately whether their plans will succeed or fail. Where is his throne? Well, it says here it's, it's a heavenly throne. So it's beyond the reach of arrows, all of the attempts of wickedness, legislation, restrictions, red tape. From that place, the Lord does as he pleases. And no one can say to him, what have you done? David, in response to his opponent saying the foundations are going to be leveled, is to point upwards. Is God still in heaven? Yes. So whatever you're afraid of, the foundations aren't really destroyed. It's not like in in Greek mythology where you have various gods and mortals rising up to hopefully overthrow the gods of Olympus. Some of them actually get pretty close. That's never going to happen to the Lord. And we need this perspective today. The reality of the immovability of the Lord has to encircle all of our decisions. It's our assurance of that reality that will determine whether we make decisions based on fear or on faith. David's detractor is convinced that the removal of the righteous will be the end of righteousness. But that isn't true. He isn't seeing things as they are. Righteousness doesn't exist as a cultural relic from the past that we need to fight to hang on to or it's going to be gone. It exists because the Lord, who is righteous, is still sitting on his throne in heaven, ensuring that righteousness and his people who love righteousness won't be overcome. Not ultimately. As long as he remains, so will the foundations of righteousness remain. Second pillar, second quality. The Lord is a righteous. uh, The Lord as a a refuge. Verses 4 and 5. We read that the Lord sees. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So yes, God is on his throne in heaven. We need that perspective. We also need to hear this, that his eyes 
detests the children of man. Though the Lord is high and lifted up, he isn't distant or removed from the affairs of his creation. You know, impassively just watching on as the wicked rampage through the land, doing whatever they want. Now it says in verse 4 here that he evaluates. He tests the hearts and the motives of the children of men. No matter how devious or shrewd or powerful they think there are, how well-connected, God sees right through it. He's not deceived. The Pharisees are constantly vexed by this in Jesus. All they want to do is to be able to maintain their power, their facade of righteousness, hold on to their influence. But Jesus doesn't let them. He names their hypocrisy, their empty religious ornaments, their lack of love for people. He calls them vipers and whitewashed tombs and blind guides. That's why they want him gone. How does God follow up his evaluations here in verse 5? Well, it says two ways. It says the Lord tests the righteous. He refines and disciplines the righteous. In other words, he prunes the fruitful branches so they'll bear more fruit. We need to remember that in the midst of upheaval. He is always refining his people. And we prioritize being safe and affluent or whatever it is, but God's priority is not our priority. He is looking at us. He is refining us to produce a faith that will be to the glory of Christ. That is God's ultimate goal. God isn't watching helplessly as the righteous endure injustice. God is using the injustice to increase our love for him. To loosen our hold on the world. There is always a good end to God's affliction. And the wicked, we read here, well, no way to sugarcoat this. The Lord hates the wicked. He turns his face away from the wicked. He must hate the wicked. It's not as if the wicked offended him at one point and he's holding this grudge since then. No, he must hate the wicked because the Lord himself is righteous. Righteousness that doesn't hate wickedness isn't righteous. Habakkuk 1 verse 3, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you are in one of two places this morning. There are no other categories. You are a beloved child of God being trained through affliction. Or you are an object of God's righteous hatred. With the current affliction, whatever that is, a foretaste of a far greater affliction to come. That is reality. Not, not a, a fixed reality. Because God also so loved the world and uh, invites you to come and, uh, and rejoice in fellowship with him. 
the way of, of wickedness and sin, it seems easy, it seems pleasurable. It's all a facade. It's all a lie. And whether you reap the consequences in this life or the life to come, I just pray the Spirit opens your eyes to see not only the necessity of repentance, turning to Christ, but the, the joy of it. <laughs> sin, is, sin is miserable, and it will lead you down a miserable road to a miserable end. In the midst of injustice, unbelief will try to tell you that wickedness can do whatever it wants. That people with power and control and money can act in secret and with impunity. And they can't. And no one can. Because the Lord sees and the Lord will judge, which is our third quality of the Lord's being a refuge. As the Lord judges. The Lord, we read here, is the judge of all the earth. And wickedness is against everything that he is. To long for justice doesn't mean you are vindictive or vengeful. Not necessarily. It means that you are being made in the image of God. It's an appropriate response to want to see injustice punished and righteousness rewarded. We've talked a lot about righteousness. Here's a question. How do you know if you're one of the righteous? I mean, if you're anything like me, you probably don't feel righteous much of the time, let alone righteous enough to endure the scrutiny of an omniscient God. We were watching an interview with Jordan Peterson a while ago. It was a great interview. I don't think I've ever seen someone so sincerely crushed at the prospect of righteousness. He, as much as admits, he can't even live up to the standards of his own books. He's, he's broken at the thought of it. And he's, he's just responding honestly to the righteousness of God. Luther, too, before God opened his eyes. Same thing. How are we going to achieve the righteousness that God requires? You know, do we get out our abacus and try to count up how many people we think we're better than that's a popular measure of righteousness these days how about if we grandstand on facebook or instagram maybe if enough other people think we're righteous that will mean we're righteous but all of those attempts are bound to fail the righteousness of god is a titanium hammer that will disintegrate everything it tests the life of fearlessness, a life of faith starts by acknowledging that righteousness can never be achieved. It can only ever be received. This is faith in action. This is where faith hits the ground. We can't pretend or posture our way into God's favor. Only in Christ can we endure his examination. We give Jesus the rags of our hypocrisy, our fear, our perversity, our selfishness, our unbelief. And a response, he gives us his sterling righteousness.
And we are counted as righteous. And our hearts are transformed from being lovers of wickedness into lovers of righteousness. Only then will you love it and walk in it and live in it and rejoice in it. You can't, again, you can't love something that condemns you. You can only hope to suppress it. As for the wicked, those who resent and avoid the righteous demands of a righteous God, again, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. Hell is a real place. It's a horrifying place. Know this. Know that no account will not be settled. That no scale will not be balanced. That all recompense will be measured out perfectly. Why not today turn to receive God's gift of righteousness in Jesus? As to application, I want to make one main point. If, as this passage says he is, the Lord is on his throne, the most reasonable thing Christians can do in the face of harm or danger is not to flee, but to fight. And I want to be very practical here. There is, not surprisingly in some ways, considering the craziness of the times we're in, a resolve among some Christians to just get away from it all. Away from the tyrants and the seized bank accounts and uh, the crazy French mercenaries that are apparently for hire for government. Um, that's, that's the bird response. That's the flight response. I just need to get somewhere safe. There's another kind of resolve that would abandon the public sphere and retreat into the quietism of family life or the refuge of one's home or vocation. Now, without nuancing this point into oblivion, it is not categorically wrong to flee. There is such a thing as strategic retreat, losing some ground now to gain it later. Jesus tells the disciples, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So, I'm not trying to make simplistic answers to complex questions here. It also isn't wrong for peace, to long for peace and safety and quiet. Those aren't wrong urges. What's wrong is to abandon your responsibilities in order to get those things. It would have been wrong for a man like David, a king, a protector, a leader, to flee like a bird to a mountain. It would have been an abdication of responsibility as well as a concession to unbelief. David is answering and rebuking not the strategic retreat, the principled retreat. What David is answering is the retreat of fear, the retreat of self-preservation, the flight of unbelief. Historically, Christians are the ones who stick around when everyone else has already fled. Uh, David Robinson, he wrote for the Ezra Institute 
a few months ago, a great article. I'm going to read a bit here. He writes, The plague of Cyprian spread across the Roman Empire and lasted two decades. According to Cyprian's uh, description, the symptoms included diarrhea, vomiting, infectious sores in the mouth and eyes, gangrene of the limbs. The disease was often fatal, and many who survived were left crippled, deaf, or blind. While most people abandoned the sick and fled Carthage, Cyprian, who was also a bishop, exhorted Christians to stay and care for the victims of the plague, whether fellow Christians or pagans. Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, provides another account of that plague. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. You could extend this to uh, war, to occupation, to dictatorship. Because who gets left behind when all the people who can leave do? Who do you have left? You have the poor and the sick and the helpless You have those who don't have the means or opportunity to extricate themselves from a bad situation. Who cares for those people? Historically, the Christians. It's been very encouraging in Ottawa. uh, The harvest is, is ripe. I mean... People, government goes on about how much they care about the the laborers, and you just these are the people that Jesus would would go to. I mean, they're rough around the edges, and they're some of them are a bit out there. You sit down with them, <laughs> and uh, riding in the. Uh, the prisoner transport yesterday, you you say the word hope and their eyes are just fixed on you. Because all they can see is despair and a, and a government that's forsaken them. And, uh, and you tell them about a hope that's beyond all that. And um, if the Christians are gone, who's going to be there to, to minister to them, and it extends it extends beyond there. Jesus didn't promise that if we followed him, our homes and our families and our livelihoods would be safe. We have to realize that. Uh, in fact, he promises us exactly the opposite. If you read Hebrews 11, you'll see that. He did promise to be with us until the end of the age. Whatever that age brings, the psalm 
this psalm and all of the psalms really stand as a reminder that the Lord is our refuge. And if the Lord is our refuge, we can say, let floods and fires and tyranny rage around us. Let them, let them come. Let death come. And maybe part of the reason we, I was thinking about this, we try to run away is that we think that maybe God doesn't actually have our best interests at heart. Like Jonah. That maybe his discipline, his testing will be the end of us. We think like the voice of unbelief, right? We think if I continue down this path, what faithfulness is requiring of me right now in my circumstance, it's not going to work out. Everything's going to fall apart. My coworkers will hate me. My family and friends will reject me. My career is going to be derailed. God's going to take all my hopes and plans and turn them into dust, and all my worst nightmares will be realized. It's the old voice of unbelief again. God is not, in fact, a good father. And we start to tell ourselves that maybe we can manufacture a better, safer, more compelling destiny than what God has for us. Listen, if we think that we are mistaken, and I'm talking to myself just as much here, Look, God's end for the Israelites was not endless desert and conflict. That's difficult to look forward to. It was ultimately peace and flourishing. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And let me tell you, the full realization of that was not Canaan. It's not possible for us to come up with a better good than God has designed for us. The Israelites tried that. They tried to bring the promised land to the desert. Give us quail. Give us soup and stew. Give us rest and safety and comfort. But God had a better end in view for them. An end that meant they would be able to see God and not just a land as their true rest. Their biggest mistake was to doubt God's end in his providence for them. And Jesus was a man of sorrows. And we will reign with him, amazingly, if we follow in the footsteps of his sorrows. Jesus didn't flee when he saw Jerusalem in the distance. He set his face like flint. And to constantly be on the lookout for the next arrow, where is it going to come so I can get to the bunker It's frankly exhausting, and it's not a place of faithfulness. You can't be faithful if you're constantly paranoid. 
the solution in our day and in every day is not to carve out our own little refuge, but to start trusting the one who is an eternal refuge. You don't need to know everything. (laughs) You don't need to change everything. Man, if you go down those rabbit trails, there is no end of theories, true or false, I don't know. You don't need to spend much time there. You don't need to be everywhere at one time. You just need to have a refuge that can do all those things. And the Lord is such a refuge for his people. My closing thought is to those here whose refuge isn't the Lord. Maybe you think you're presently pretty safe and secure. Maybe you don't feel secure at all. I pray that God would grant that you leave today confessing Christ as the sure and steady anchor. And for Christians, this is, this is a challenging time. These are the biggest challenges I think we've, we've faced, certainly in my lifetime. I'm sure some of you have seen more challenges, but we need to resolve more and more. I love what uh, Jim said in his prayer this morning. You just spend less time fretting about the news, what could happen, what might happen. And we need to recommit ourselves to abiding in the vine. Uh, We won't be faithful if we're just informed. (laughs) It's good to be informed, but you can have all the knowledge and the information in the world and not be obedient. We need to recommit ourselves to trusting Christ, to trusting God's good providence in our lives. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be flower. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the bedrock promises of your word. They are the only sure place to stand in these days. I pray that if there are any here this morning who are discouraged, fretful, anxious, that they would be reminded of the truth, not give in to unbelief. We thank you, Lord, that you are making all things new, that you will one day bring an end to injustice and unrighteousness there will be no more dark corners in this world all will be arrayed with light and uh, and jesus christ will receive the reward of his sufferings it's not ultimately about us it's about your glory lord would you create a people of of fearlessness Because you have endured the wrath of God. You have endured more suffering than we can imagine. It is but our duty and responsibility to follow you. To trust your end in our lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen.